y'all, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Folksy, a folk horror movie podcast. Yay! Um, <laughs> I am Melinda Catherine, and I am so excited to welcome you all into my woods as a 400-year-old mountain hag who has ascended from an abandoned silver mine at an undisclosed location. It feels so good <laughs> to be summoned back here to one of my favorite places to talk about three of my favorite things in the whole world, folklore, horror, and movies. <laughs> so in 2010, writer-actor Mark Gatiss used the term folk horror in his docuseries A History of Horror to identify a subgenre of British films. Typical elements used to identify this subgenre included a rural setting, isolation, themes of superstition, folk religion, paganism, and the dark aspects of nature. Obviously, this genre is older than 13 years, and folklore storytelling is as old as the world itself, uh, I should know. <laughs> folklore is the traditional beliefs, customs, and stories of a community passed down through generations. Originally passed down by word of mouth, later it was drawn, written, and of course eventually filmed. Communities have also changed as the world has advanced. We're a global society with friends and family sometimes very far apart from each other, yet connected through a piece of glass that lives in your pocket. So it's no wonder that we have begun to notice a folk horror uh, revival, you know, more prominently in modern film. We recently just lived through a global event that literally forced us to take a hard look at our personal survival skills and with and without community creating ritual, developing skills, and breaking up the mundanity. At the same time, we're being connected to this large information network, the largest that the planet has ever seen. Gata set down a great foundation, but the vast scope of folk horror pre and post 2010 encompasses so much more cultural history, and its evolution has been rapid as hell since the age of cyber technology. And that's what I am here to talk with you all about. Now, there is no right way or wrong way to enjoy things here within the depths of my domain. Horror is subjective. Something that scares you might not scare the person next to you and vice versa. Cinema's place in the folkloric conversation is important, as well as those who participate and inspire that cinema. So I have decided to summon lovers, artisans, creators, magicians, and cinema fanatics from beyond the mists and to venture forth and discuss how these stories have influenced their imagination and their lives. I am so excited that with that, you know, I get to announce the first soul to join me on this adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Leah Johns. Yay. Hi. Hi, Leah. How are you? I am great. I am so excited that that you are here. For those of you who are not familiar with Leah Johns, she is a culinary blogger and a food photographer. Even if you don't cook yourself, the photos that she puts out are so beautiful and they have this like great air of spooky and they really tell like this great story. What do you consider like your aesthetic when you when you look at your blog? Ooh, ah, I ooh, that's a box. Um No, I didn't mean to put you in a box. <laughs> okay. Um I am just not really good at describing myself. Let's see. Um kind of a you've used the words dark academia before, which I really enjoy. Yeah, like I go for like a dark Wes Anderson. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. Like a little vintage, a little folksy, 
a little cottage core. Yeah. Wes Anderson has kind of built this aesthetic and I love people putting something spooky on top of it. It becomes like this very classical. It's like if Chanel got a goth makeover. I love it. That's so cool. So your blog went up in 2021. I'm trying to remember, was this during the pandemic or was this post the pandemic? Um, I started everything. So I started, I've been posting food pics on my Instagram for a very long time. Correct. As um, a friend of the pod, I can, I can corroborate that. <laughs> <laughs> so like it, I, I've been posting food pics on my Instagram since like 2017, 2018. Um, with people asking me for recipes and me being like, oh yeah, just DM me and maybe I'll get around to it. And uh, 2020 hit and I had nothing better to do. So then I was typing the recipes up with people telling me to start a blog. 2021, my um, dear sweet father-in-law just bought me a domain and was like, do it. <laughs> oh my God. That's so nice. I did not know that part. Oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah. So um, then it kind of just got me off my butt and it's like, okay, I guess, I guess I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So you were, you were a reluctant cook chef to, to blogger. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like that means I actually have to pay attention to measurements so I could tell other people what to do. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It, it holds you accountable. Yeah. That. Oh my goodness. Uh, Cause that's the fun thing about cooking is that, you know, once you kind of get in the zone, you know, you really can just kind of play with it. It really is more art than science. As compared yeah. It's to a things. lot of ad libbing. It's a lot of to your personal taste and um, me having to uh, curb a lot of things to make it more relatable to the general public. I find that very interesting though. That's really, really interesting that in order to make it more mass, you do have to do all these little refinements and the like, because that kind of brings us into what we're going to be talking about today here, which is that I'm so excited that we've got Leah here to talk about our very first folk horror film, which is The Menu. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Before we dive into the film, I do have a personal request. Um, before we begin, will you give an offering to my campfire? Sure. Lovely. Excellent. This is how I like to start off these episodes, the idea that we are kind of giving something of ourselves, a uh, sacrifice to whatever folk horror gods may bless this here podcast, uh, uh, looking down at me, shaking their fists at me, saying we haven't had one for a while. In the form of an offering, if I may ask, what is your favorite food moment in a horror movie? Everything oh. from like, the popcorn burning in Scream to like Ray Liotta's brain in Hannibal, like it's all on the table. Oh, favorite food movie. Food moment in a movie. Oh my God. Oh, what a spot to be put in. I keep breaking you. I'm so sorry. You do. You do. I I was not prepared for this. Perhaps this was the sacrifice all along. <laughs> I am the sacrifice. Let me just walk into the fire. You should have uh, you should have asked me this near the end. Now you're not gonna get anything out of me because I just have to walk into the fire. Oh uh. my god, no, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> The point of the wicker man is not to necessarily just throw you in, um, but, you know, just kind of like on the idea of, you know, all of this, you know, across the globe, we've devoted so much ritual to the act of like nutritional consumption, you know, how we, how yeah. we hunt, how we gather, how the physical act of cooking raw materials, adding spices, balancing a palate, uh, uh, holidays to celebrate harvest and gods who get angry if the harvest sucks. You know, maybe the better question is, why do you think we love food and horror together? 
Well, I mean, food is ritual. Absolutely. Or is part of a ritual. And like food is community. Food is how we show love. Food is how we can sometimes show punishment. Ooh. Uh, food, yeah. food is how we can murder. Yeah. Food is life. Food is everything. Without food, we don't exist. That is so eloquently put. And I think that it is a very, very great framing device for how we look at something like the 2022 film, The Menu. So for those of you who might not have seen The Menu, it is directed by Mark Mylod, written by Seth Rees and Will Tracy, starring Ray Fiennes, Anna Taylor-Joy, and Nicholas Holt. The film itself is uh, about a group of ultra-wealthy high-end diners with a demanding palate as they arrive at Hawthorne, an exclusive culinary temple island run by a highly regarded gourmet chef by the name of Julian Slowick, played by Ralph Fiennes. Uh, however, as each course gets more sinister and, the, and disturbing, the guests realize that they've been brought to the island for an entirely different purpose. At this point in time in the podcast, if you haven't seen the menu, now is the time to turn back. If you are okay with continuing further, do step closer to the fire. So this movie, I don't know if you actually knew this. This was something that I kind of found out while researching a little bit for the pod. Uh, this movie was actually like a brainchild of the succession room. And I guess like one of the writers who, did, yeah, no, one of the whole, like the writers, I guess, in like his research for succession did the whole like boat to Island for a restaurant tour thing in Norway. And it fascinated him so much. He started to like conceptualize this film uh, and they all, you know, basically like kind of members of the succession team were working on this while they were kind of like in and out of the writer's room, which I think is fascinating. That's so insane to me. It also though, I think it makes a lot of sense for the humor of the film. Like, are you a succession watcher? Yes, no? I, I, no, I'm not on that bandwagon yet. I am an obsessor. So <laughs> <laughs> I love a good Shakespearean drama and boy, howdy, do they deliver. But that's kind of it. There's this punchy kind of like nature to these really awful people that can connect you like just enough that you really care about what is ostensibly not their nothing problems, but their problems that are just so scale wise out of our depth. So this was kind of like your introduction to succession type glitterati <laughs> of the food world uh, with, with the way that this film is written, because they really do do a good job right at the beginning of introducing you to these characters that you have both seen before and you kind of love to hate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've got uh, uh, Margot, who is kind of the, the girlfriend of Tyler, who is a food blogger, much like yourself. <laughs> Go on. You seem like you have something you want to say about Tyler, though. No, no, no. Tell me more. <laughs> uh, no, mm, no. Uh, I just, mm, I'm not a fan. Not a fan. Okay, elaborate I'm just, on that. I'm just not, a not a fan of Tyler. I'm just going to leave it there. I'm just not a fan. Oh, okay, fine. Uh, uh, excellent. Well, then, in that case, you know, uh, some of the other people who were on the boat are Lillian, who is a food critic. She's kind of got her weird little yes boy kind of with her, the guy who kind of, like, follows her around and is always like, yes, yes, no, exactly what you say is perfect. We have my all-time favorite, Anne, played by Judith Light, who is there with her husband. They are the restaurant regulars, where despite this being a multi-thousand dollar 
experience to go to this restaurant. They've done it a few times and they, this is their quote unquote favorite restaurant. This is kind of where they go on a Thursday night, uh, even though it's exceedingly exotic and exceedingly expensive. And then John Leguizamo plays a character that is very close to my heart, if not just because he is just called the movie star. Uh, he has no name in this film. John Leguizamo. His name is John Leguizamo in this film. You are correct. And of course, there's like a little bit of like, I guess, more famous film history. This is the one that like when I bring up this movie, everybody always mentions, which is that I guess originally this role was written for Daniel Radcliffe and was supposed oh. to reference his portrayal in a film called Young Frankenstein, which I actually have not seen, <laughs> but apparently is quite bad because the idea is that this is an aging movie star who fancies himself a food critic. So these are the people that have kind of all come together on this boat. And our outlier is really Anna Taylor-Joy's character, Margot, who is just a lady who is here with her date to go to a fancy restaurant. What a date. <laughs> what a date. Is this the kind of date that you would like be intrigued by? Like if a guy was like, hey, we're going to go on a boat to go to a restaurant, would you do it? Um, as a first date yeah let's say as a first date why not no you want a real ham hug no okay why not oh i would not get on a boat with a guy i don't know hey. <laughs> i watch horror films yeah. and i watch true crime yes and i sort of value my life <laughs> okay so the idea of getting on a boat, even though you've got like all of these other people, you know, kind of like on the boat, you've got like this aging actor, you know, restaurant regulars. Oh, we've also got like three tech bros who are just being like shitty in the corner. I think Tyler even mentions, oh, it's a power tasting. Oh, you know, <laughs> having a table full of broies don't make it any better. You make a very compelling point. <laughs> <laughs> but but really, like even like as a food blogger, the idea of doing something like this, let's say it's not a date. Let's say that it's just an invitation. You know, is this something that that holds interest to you as somebody who does love food? I'm intrigued. Yes. I read every review, every write up, every like every little thing found on the internet about said island and how to get on and off said island. Yeah. I love this because do you think Tyler did the same thing? No. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, some people don't actually like consider this a horror movie, let alone a folk horror film, uh, which I think is personally insane. But like, what are your thoughts on this? Because already just the idea of getting on a boat with a guy for the first time, you are in fact describing a horror movie. Yeah, no, it's totally a horror movie. Like, nobody's like, oh, how do we get off this island? No, we're just going to get on this boat, ride over, let the boat leave. Because da, 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 da. <laughs> well, yeah, this is totally fine. No, no. Oh, my goodness. This is some upper class BS if I've ever heard some. Oh, no, that's entirely fair. And honestly, upper class BS is becoming such a staple now for modern folk horror. Um, I know that that you and I, when we watch movies together, the way that I always kind of define folk horror is uh, at least like in an easy way in this very, um, you know, like elephants are gray, but not all gray things are elephants. Oftentimes I'll be like, is this movie about putting a guy in a wicker man? And, you know, is it about like, and, and ultimately what I mean by that, just because, you know, Gatiss does create this great foundation for it is 
Are we sending someone into a space where their discomfort with the space is going to set them up to be a sacrifice in the end? Because like you said, these guys have a choice to not get on that boat. They have a choice to research this restaurant. There is like this sense of mundanity to this very exotic experience they are about to have, which directly comes as a result of that wealth that you were talking about. So yeah, you know, watching them arrive on this beautiful, you know, almost mysterious, mystical island. Um, and as you even kind of mentioned with your food blog, you know, sometimes folk horror is an aesthetic or a vibe. And I think that the, do we call it the Isle of Hawthorne or just Hawthorne restaurant? <laughs> what do you think? I think it's an island. I think the whole island is Hawthorne. Yes. The Isle of Hawthorne then. Uh, uh, but like the Isle of Hawthorne, whatever the fuck is definitely a fucking vibe. I will totally. Would yeah. you film it for, or would you take pictures of it for your blog? Oh, yes. If I was allowed to, yeah, I would definitely be there with my camera for oh sure. My. Yay. <laughs> See, I love the island tour. I love a good tour, though. I love a good, like, haunted spooky tour. And even though this technically isn't a haunted spooky tour, you know, like, we've got uh, everybody arrives and the two regulars are like, we've done this tour a million times and they immediately go to the restaurant. But everybody else kind of gets this introduction to, you know, where their food comes from. And so we kind of get this this tour with like a fisherman pulling, you know, mussels and scallops out of the, the ocean. I know nothing about fishing, obviously. No, no, no. It's just like, it's like the rich person's red lobster tour. Oh my God. I had never thought of it that way, but you were <laughs> really correct. It is the rich person's red lobster tour. Like you're seeing, yeah. you're seeing your lobster before it comes to your teeth. And they even kind of do the thing. Oh, pick good ones. Like, yeah, no, you're Wow. It is incredible uh, uh, how accurate that is. See, I love that you like, like that's like the first thing that you hone into because for me, it's the Alpine Smokehouse where it's basically just like the creepiest chemistry lab that you've ever seen. Because that's kind of, you know me, I love a good barbecue. And yeah. so smoking meat and the science that goes into smoking meat and really loosening everything up and, you know, getting that kind of great, beautiful texture when you go to cook it is a huge exper uh, experiment because it can go wrong and you can get very sick, which they even kind of talk about. It's what you mentioned before. There's poisons in the, in the food that we eat sometimes. Yeah, there are. And then of course we get that wonderful Ikea employee housing with all the open air toilets that <laughs> we finally land on where all of the staff lives, which again, it's very cult-like. It's very folklore. Immediate cult vibes. Turn around, leave. Turn oh around and leave. Turn around and leave the minute you see the open air toilet. The toilet is out in the open next to beds. Ooh. Everyone can see you use the bathroom. Yeah. And it's like right near their head if you're not super great with aim. Like, like, you, like you're okay. You're still okay going on and eating in this restaurant, looking at how the employees live. Oh you're God. still okay with this. You're just like, yeah, this is fine. Yeah. But it really does, you know, it kind of, I think oftentimes when we think of a lot of this kind of like folkloric stuff, we think of, you know, again, very simple housing. We think everybody's wearing the same thing. They're all gardening together. They eat together. They sleep together. And we didn't really, or we don't really oftentimes think about how that's kind of the way that restaurant worship does kind of work to an extent. Uh, maybe not necessarily living together unless it's school or something like that. But the the camaraderie in the community that you can build in a kitchen is yeah. very, very tight in that way. And it is very life-consuming. No, I mean, in a professional kitchen, it is 
you can compare it to a military or a cult. Have you worked in a professional kitchen before? I have not. I have not had the desire to. Mm. First off, it is extremely expensive to go to culinary school. Yeah. Um, you either have to come from money or sell everything you own um, to go to culinary school and yeah. have that full passion to um, never really be stable. And <laughs> you have to really, really hate yourself. Wow. That's funny. You were sitting there and describing what it was like when I was like working once upon a time as like an actor and like had time. Oh, I guess we're not paying for the electric today. (laughs) You have to really hate yourself and then just like have a deep sense of I'm never going to be good enough to want to be a professional chef. That is such an interesting take on it because, yeah, that's kind of what art is. Art is in many, many ways, at least in my experience. It's never going to be good enough. Nothing's ever going to be good enough. Ah, yeah. High level of perfectionism. (laughs) Is that what drew you to doing something like a food blog as compared to doing something like working in a restaurant? I mean, I just, I like cooking for people. Mm. I I mean, like, I like watching people eat my food and enjoy my food. Mm -hmm. Just like my mother does just like my grandparents did. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just, it brings me joy. And I think doing anything professionally that does bring you joy will eventually not bring you joy. Interesting. I mentioned before the idea of religion in mm. regards to folk horror. And I think that in so many, you know, we see this with so many modern folk horror you know, films like uh, like Jordan Peele's Us, I think is probably the pinnacle example of using capitalism as a sense of religion. Because especially for, you know, Americans, we really have kind of replaced that notion. But, you know, you were kind of touching on something that I that is near and dear to my heart, which is the theater of a good meal. So when all of our restaurant tours, you know, kind of get inside of this actual like temple space and, you know, from what you've been describing, we haven't even met the chef yet. We haven't even met Chef Slovak. And, and, you know, the, the blood, sweat, tears, and other fluids that have to go into wanting to get to this point. How, how did you feel when you see this group of restaurateurs, like, walk into this space and immediately treat it like they're, like, bad movie theater patrons who, like, assume that the price of admission has given them permission to treat this space like it's their couch? I've been to Michelin star restaurants. And I'm always blown away because everything is so thought out down to every microscopic detail. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and not even like a passing glance thought out. It is agonized over. Yeah. So to have somebody be any bit of dismissive is so disrespectful. Yeah. That angered me so much. That's fair. That is entirely fair. Watching Tyler, that's why I said, no, do not compare me to watching him. I love this. And let me apologize. I did not mean to make it sound like other than just the profession name that you were anything like Tyler. Tyler Tyler is an acolyte in his own category, I would say. As a result, it's it's really easy, like again, in this beautiful kind of like Wicker Man-esque kind of way, because they're so awful, 
it really is easy to give them enough rope to to hang themselves. Yeah. Uh, and to fulfill the dreams of some of the employees. I don't know about you, but as somebody who worked in service, like the introduction of the courses and as everything kind of progresses. Uh, it's, oh, everything is, first off, everything is so beautiful. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the first course, the island. Yes, let's. So this was, this was, I believe it's a, it's a seafood dish. And really all it is, is like fish on top of rocks with frozen seawater, which I'm saying in the most like undelicate way. What I like about this course, and it ties back to some of what we've been talking about, particularly the capitalism. And this is a restaurant full of wealthy people. Yeah. Is that we are serving people seawater. Yes. (laughs) frozen seawater correct something that one costs zero money oh yeah something that two is filthy is it seawater is not clean that is entirely fair i i am again i'm a mountain bitch i don't i don't nothing nothing in the sea is clean you have do you not wash your fish before you eat it i don't eat fish okay yes you would have to talk but you would but you would Wash even if you caught it in the yep. stream, you would wash it before you ate it. Truth. The ocean is just a giant river. This is very true. <laughs> this is very, very true. Well, the ocean still uses the ocean as a giant toilet. Plus, mm-hmm. plus everything else. Yeah. No, touche. Touche. We took a bucket of that, brought it in, rose it a little bit. Oh my god. Dropped it on their plates. Yeah. No, so dirty okay. fish on rocks is it, what in here. <laughs> ate it up and i love it yeah they relished it absolutely this is the one where uh you know the food critic really kind of like gets to play with this notion of just like it's very simple it's very like mm. and and yeah it is something that just it's it's just pure ingredients you know which is wild and it's being created again it's the theater of the meal because it's on like all of these rocks and stuff like that. Food styling is a huge part of what you do. You know, how much work would you say is about the styling versus the food? Oh, the styling can take you way longer than actually creating the dish. Dang. How come? Um, <laughs> because something can taste delicious, but photograph or just look terrible. Getting something to look good mm-hmm. takes a lot of work and a lot of different camera angles and you have to play with color theory and everything else like dang allegations of level and how the light's going to hit it and everything like first for something as simple as a cookie it can take a couple hours to style dang that's why photograph wow and by then it's cold <laughs> it's always cold by the time you see the final photos. Yeah, it's always cold. It's never hot by the time I'm eating it. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> you want to eat the cookie? It does look so good. Yeah, you know, like that's kind of the part of the trickery of the, I guess, the theater of the good meal. Um, and you know, of course, by the time we get to our next course, which is the breadless bread plate, we we finally get to start to see some of the, like these tensions between just like who's this meal for. In many ways, because, you know, uh, Chef Slovak talks about how bread is, 
you know, for, for, you know, the rich, <laughs> essentially, you know, bread was something, you know, being used, uh, uh, you know, the poor would, would dip stale bread in their wine, you know, kind of thing. You know, it really was like a status symbol. And so tonight, this group, they were given their first no, if you will, of the evening, yeah. like, which is where... Satisfying. Yeah. Ab- oh, it's so satisfying. And we have so many different reactions to it. I think my personal favorite is the tech bros. Say that watching Elsa tell them no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They they suddenly, it's not that they even wanted bread. It's the fact that they're being denied bread. Yeah. All. Yeah. And and that makes them want it more. And then on the other side of that, we've got Margot, who is just pissed that there's no bread at this fancy fucking restaurant. <laughs> and bless her, because she's right. And, you know, it, it's, it is kind of like this notion of, I came here, there's two expectations kind of shown with this particular course, I would say. You get the, the expectation of, I should be able to have whatever I want. And mm-hmm. you have the expectation of, I might not have paid for this, but I know what kind of experience this is. And I expect you to be doing your job and yeah. your job is to serve me. It is yeah. not to, to, you know, to do any sort of theater. It is to bring me food and for me to eat it and for me to like what I'm eating. Exactly. And it creates this wonderful kind of split in this film that we begin to see, which is Margot versus everyone else in the way that they come at food. Uh, which is really, really interesting. Would you be? Would you ever be okay with having Margot at your at your dinner table? I mean, I have. Ooh, how so? Um, I mean, <laughs> um, I I may have married into a different culture. Um, that is fair. Leave it at that. Um, yeah. Not a not a a group of like spicy food people or just like how how would you describe your all different uh, open to different spices in general. It takes some working to change people's minds on things, um, to open people's minds to new ideas of things. Hmm. In some cases, like Margot is a little close minded. Interesting. Yeah, and and I mean we do learn why she's so close minded. In this, it is revealed throughout the film that Margot is, in fact, a a hired. Um, she's a sex worker. Sex worker. As a result, she works in a different side of the service industry. Mm-hmm. And Chef Slovak, kind of in these reactions from from the breadless bread plate, starts to realize not only is this woman not supposed to be here, she actually wasn't even on the original invite. Tyler had had a different guest who the implication is that it might be like an ex-girlfriend kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but the actual reveal is that he has hired her because you cannot have a reservation for one at this restaurant. Yeah. And so Chef Slovak suddenly has to deal with, in his room full of sacrifices, does this person deserve to be here? Which is almost, in a weird way, kind of this reverse wicker man that I absolutely love. I'm a huge wicker bitch. I'm going to keep bringing it up throughout the podcast. <laughs> a wicker bitch is just a, a goth who likes color. And so, and so yeah, you know, we, we kind of get this moment where rather than being, you know, part of, of what is eventually going to be the final meal here... You know, Margot has this opportunity as the the rest of the meals kind of progress to to find a sense of escape. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, And that kind of becomes this this notion, this 
for, for her to kind of continue on throughout the rest of these meals. Cause I want to say that the next one we have is, is memory. That's the chicken, chicken tacos. Yeah. 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 Yes. So after we have our breadless bread plate and much complaining, we have these chicken thigh tacos, which the Taco Tuesday story of which Chef Slovak kind of tells is really kind of a framing device for, <laughs> for him to tell this story of abuse and in, in alcoholism in his home. And, you know, to a point where even the entire time sitting in the corner of the restaurant saying silent and just drinking has actually been his mother. Is my favorite person in this entire film. Oh my God, I love that for you. Why is why is mommy your favorite? Because she gives no fucks. She doesn't. There, no, there are no pretenses with her. She's in sweats. She's drinking her wine and they keep serving her more wine. Nice wine too. And like, she's just living her best life over there in that corner. Looking at all these rich people dressed up. With all these pretenses, like what? Like you could have shown up here in sweats and been comfortable <laughs> like me. That's true. I wonder what the dress code at Hawthorne is if there is one. I feel like it's unstated, but also at the same time, if you were to show up in sweats, there would be. What are they going to do? Send you away after paying how much money? I, you know, it's really unclear because Hong Chao is so like transcendently good. <laughs> at her job. Hong yeah. Chao plays Elsa, who is the hostess for our evening. She meets the guests when they arrive on the island. She gives them their tour. Um, and then she proceeds to be the one who kind of has to deal with everyone in the restaurant pit while everyone else is kind of working in the kitchen. And so predominantly what she gets to do, she gets to tell all these tech bros to suck it. Not in a literal way, but in a very figurative and much worse way. <laughs> Because, yeah, what, what were your thoughts seeing that scene with her and the tortillas? <laughs> you mean her speak to them like they were children? Yes. Um, pure joy. Pure joy? Pure, her being like, it's a tortilla. Tortilla. <laughs> yes, but what is it? A tortilla. So much joy. Absolutely. And that's kind of, you know, again, that's that very punchy humor that at least I'm very used to seeing with Succession, which is this notion of what happens when you tell these people who are used to hearing yes to everything? No. And when the chicken thigh tacos come out and uh, it is revealed that there are these like laser engravings on the tortillas. So, so yeah, you know, we kind of get this, this like notion of these tortillas revealing secrets uh, of kind of everyone, like moving forward, we begin to see that this is kind of more sinister, like this cascading effect of of restaurateurs versus staff. Um, very clearly, Chef Slovic knows things about everybody's lives that they don't necessarily want others to know, um, including things like Judith Light's husband has been hiring Margot as, as mm -hmm. because she looks like his daughter, just so he can like masturbate and cry. And then we've got the tech bros who apparently have been embezzling from their company. And, yeah. you know, so pretty much immediately who is in charge gets flipped with the, the chicken thigh taco. And from there, we kind of get to experience this lovely little rampage of the employees mm -hmm. <laughs> for, for better or worse, you know, because these employees really are just as sad as Chef Slovak. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we've got Jeremy Loudon, who is both the creator and perpetrator of the mess. Yeah. Um, which I believe is a bone marrow. 
Ooh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a bone marrow dish that the theater of that, of course, is that Jeremy Loudon basically reveals that he knows that no matter how hard he has worked and no matter how how much of his life he has put into becoming a man like Chef Slovak, yeah, he is not talented enough and he doesn't want Chef Slovak's life because it's very sad. Yeah, and he shoots himself in front as a sacrifice you know, surrounded by herbs <laughs> in front of the entire restaurant. Um, we have Man's Folly, which is a Dungeness crab. Uh, <laughs> but more to the theatricality of it all is about sending all of the men of the restaurant out into the wilderness of the island to be hunted for sport as kind of a sense of revenge play for another chef who had hit on several times. And when she rejected him, uh, he then proceeded to treat her like shit in, in the workplace. And I don't know about you, but definitely, you know, that's, that's something oh. <laughs> that I can relate to. Uh, oh yeah. I remember that being a server. Oh Honestly. yeah. Yeah. I used to work overnight in room dining at a, uh, at a five-star hotel. And so the restaurant attached to the hotel had an overnight menu. So we were expected to bring that level of excellence of the restaurant you know, at two o'clock in the morning to you for you to enjoy what has to be a perfect $80 burger is really genuinely good. <laughs> <enough>. um, <laughs> but, but as a result of that, you know, while, while the staff is kind of getting to play, we get to see how Chef Slovak really does have to have a conversation with Margot about yeah. what side are you on? Yeah. You know, and it's such an interesting kind of take on the, the Sergeant Howie's of yesteryear and this notion of, you know, look, everyone's going to die tonight. So what are you, what side do you want to be on? Do you want to, to die on the side of the providers or the takers, which is such an interesting notion for it? How do you feel about that as, as somebody who creates this kind of food and also as, as somebody who's worked in service? I mean, personally, neither. Um, I, I'd like to not have either, please. Well, like I think is not the question. <laughs> uh, I mean, if I had to, I I would be on the side with the workers, um, just because I I relate more to the people on the service side than I do on the people being served. Yeah, yeah. I I'm I'm I I've been on the other side in a very nice establishment. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever been in a three Michelin star restaurant ever. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a really interesting question, you know, kind of that that comes down to, especially if you enjoy food but have worked on the the other side of it. Um, you know, it, it does become this kind of complicated question, not just of like, who are you at any one point in time? Are you this the one being served or are you the one giving the service? Yeah. But what happens when you have always been the one giving service and exactly. you are finally being served? Yeah. You know, I think that that in many ways is what helps Margot take her skill set of being able to read people and, and move it forward in this film. Um, because, of course, after Man's Folly, we have Tyler's bullshit. <laughs> Tyler, 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 Tyler. Again, it feels like for somebody who you do not like, you have a lot to say about him. And I'm very curious. Because, but because okay, like we call him a food blogger, right? We call him a food blogger. Yes. But there are different types of food bloggers. Okay. 
So there are the food bloggers who are recipe developers. Mm -hmm. There are food bloggers who cook. Mm -hmm. And then there are food bloggers who go to places and eat. Do like mini reviews, but aren't critics. So what would you consider the difference between like what Tyler does and being a food critic? Uh, Food critics work for major publications for the most part. Fair. They clout behind them. They can make or break careers. Could have a following, could not have a following. What Tyler does is like, hey, like this place has really good burgers. This place, oh my God, had the best sushi I've ever had in my life. You need to go there, blah, 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 blah. He's like a the website version of a Yelp review. I love that because one of the things that I absolutely love about how they portray Tyler in this film is that we never actually see him using social media in the way that you would initially kind of expect from someone like a Yelper or something like that. At one point in time, he does kind of illegally take a picture of his food. Uh, In fact, that is his tortilla. (laughs) Um, But, you know, ultimately we, we don't see him constantly posting. We don't see him trying to make content or talking about all the other restaurants he's necessarily been to. You know, in many ways, Tyler as a food fanatic is very kind of like secular while he's here because in many ways, he's kind of the only one who understands the the theater uh, or wants to understand the theater of it. No, he is a stan. He is a stan. He's a food stan. Well, specifically of this sh- particular chef. He's an acolyte. He, 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 he is one of those pretentious people who is like, oh, yes, there's the aroma of this. It's like, do you actually, is your palate actually refined enough to know what that is? Or did you just learn that road? that word and you're throwing it out? I think he does have a certain amount of the palate. I think that the problem is, is that he likes to show it off. Cause we do have that moment. There's the, there's literally the palate cleanser where he's like, is there bergamot in this? And the chef then like rolls his eyes. Cause it's like, yes, it's bergamot tea. But, but you know, yeah, there, there is something to be said about the fact that he is all talk and no necessarily like practice. Cause that's how we end up with Tyler's bullshit, which is actually a scene that I I I think we always want to be really satisfied by the end of it, but there is something a little, a little sad about, you know, watching him receive the, the flat toned encouragement of his hero who he has been emailing with, you know, knowing exactly what was going on this evening, you know, and is kind of called out very publicly, not, not in front of the other restaurant tours. They bring him into the kitchen and he says, you are a cook cook something in that very uh, sinister way where you really get to hit that hard K. Yeah, like if you've spent all this time pretending to be one of us, so be one of us. Yeah. Do it. Yeah, you know our fancy equipment. You know our fancy ingredients. You know, can you actually do it? Chef, because you did not work on the line. You did not go to school for this. You don't get the title chef, but cook something. Well, there's practice, I would say, as well. There's a certain amount of practice that goes into, you know, a lot of these kind of more what we would almost consider mundane activities. But that's a lot of what being in the kitchen is, is it it is a lot of like waiting for the timer to go off and then flipping something, Mm -hmm. you know, or it is a lot of prep, you know, just there's so much prep that goes into, Mm -hmm. you know, a meal. 
Um, and then I know that this is something that you and I have always joked about, but the fact that he immediately decides on lamb, which is an incredibly difficult protein to cook. The lamb, the lamb, the lamb. Immediately you go for lamb. Yeah. And, the, it, and it takes the longest to cook. Like, yeah. what, uh, no. My God, man. <laughs> no, it's, and those lollipops are huge. Like there's just, there's so much that if he were to kind of like prepare himself for this kind of like cult of culinary excellence, there's an expectation again, that that practice would have really gone into it. And, you know, maybe it's nerves, maybe it's the circumstance. Cause you know, again, for all we know, and I am not a, a Tyler defender per se. I just love how much this film does not tell us about him. He is all attitude. You know, it could be nerves or it could just be that he genuinely has no idea how to put this kind of stuff together. We obviously nerves because there's some, there's pressure. There's yeah. a lot of pressure. You have a kitchen full of chefs staring you down while you're being quote unquote encouraged. Yeah. It's basically Gordon Ramsay without the yelling. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Gordon Ramsay because like, you know, kind of, I would say in the past like decade, the cult of, of kind of culinary excellence has become very real. Uh, you know, things like home cooking reality shows have been brought back or, or like bringing back this notion of the celebrity chef. And mm -hmm. so I know you've mentioned in the past, you grew up watching Julia Childs. And so like mm -hmm. culturally, how do you feel that we've gotten from like Julia Childs to someone like Chef Slovak? Um, well... The invention of Food Network mm -hmm. helped promote that. Yeah. Um, when back in Julia Child's day, the mission star didn't exist. Yeah, that's very true. I had not thought about that before. The competition amongst restaurants was more stay open, have longevity, mm. get good reviews. Yeah. Instead of get a star. Okay, get your second star. Okay, get your third star. Okay, what are you doing next? It's literally a sticker system. And then it's like, what are you doing? Okay, no, you've gotten three stars. What are you doing next? You're not staying, you're obviously not staying at this restaurant. What are you doing next? Do something better. Do better, do better, do better. Yeah. That cult of culinary excellence really does kind of define a lot of what we see in Chef Slovak because yeah, it never really ends. It never ends. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it, it shows in literally everything that they're putting, you know, kind of like onto the plate. We've got these dishes that they create that are so insanely beautiful, their art, and, you know, they're for sure part of the storytelling. And I think we actually get a little more screen time of the photos of the food than the food itself. <laughs> Goes back to what you were saying, uh, you know, just kind of about like the amount of time it takes to set these up, except for our final dish of the evening, which is, of course, the cheeseburger. Uh, that cheeseburger. That cheeseburger, yeah. No, the, the cheeseburger, and you we've kind of been talking about this a little bit, which is that way of like, how do you talk your way out? How does one lamb talk itself out of the sacrifice? You know, when, when they're in the pen with all of the other lambs. Slovak has tried with Margot. He tries to, to get her to do tasks around the restaurant. He's been kind of, you know, scoping her out. But at the same time, she's kind of been scoping him out by by learning things about him and by applying her own trade of kind of figuring out what men want the menu does something really interesting which is that ultimately Margot is able to free herself through this notion of what if i can bring you back to cook something that just reminds you of a good memory it brought him back to a time when he was happy cooking yeah Absolutely. The one thing that he wanted to be was happy again while he was cooking something. Yeah. And, and we get this beautiful 
immaculate cheeseburger, which you and I have actually had. Yes. Uh, uh, I was going to say, again, Leah, friend of the pod, has gone with me to Irv's. We actually made a special trip of it to go after we, we saw the movie. We did. Yeah. yeah. Which is really, really lovely. And it was really fucking good. Oh, my God. I dream about that burger. And again, I wonder if some of it is the folkloric storytelling that went into convincing me that it's the best burger, but also it might be the best burger I've ever had. No, I've been, I've been trying to recreate that sauce. That dill yeah. sauce? Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. The one that you can, like, dip your french fries in? Oh, my God. Yeah. It was it was so good. It's so well cooked. We had to, I mean, again, we had to wait a little bit for it because there was, like, a weird line situation. But, like, by the time we finally sat down and got these... I think we waited a half hour. I think we got there at like 11, had to wait that half hour. And we're like, ah, oh, I just want this burger. Was this worth it? And it was a hundred percent worth it. <laughs> it was so worth it. And it's amazing how like good food like that and an experience like that, which is ultimately what Chef Slovic has, or Slowick. Wow. I've been saying this wrong the entire time. Oopsie doozle. It's fine. I'm 400 years old. My brain is whatever. But you see someone like Chef Slovic trying to Slowick, 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 <laughs> trying to create, you know, kind of the experience that we got just driving down to go eat a specialty cheeseburger that we, you know, had heard was from this movie that we liked together. The the cheeseburger kind of in that way, again, it's neither an American food or a non-American food or, or no, I mean, it's German. Burgers are German, right? Am I crazy? I think so. Okay. So, okay. yeah. Like, it's not even, like, necessarily, like, an American food. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's it's considered as part of, you know, it's barbecues. It's, you know, beach tide. It's, it's, the cheeseburger is such, like, an American staple of, like, these little moments in our lives. To a point where it's literally used to save Margot's. Because, we you know, we see this myriad of sacrifices at the end. Uh, you know, being cleansed through through fire as a result of all of their fates. But Margot gets to walk away. Does she? You know, there are a couple of like weird online conspiracy theories. Tell me what you think about this. There is a theory that the burger is poisoned, which like, yeah, yeah exactly. And then actually that's the only one that I can remember is that like the, the idea is that like Margot is not supposed to make it off the island, but I genuinely feel like she deserved to make it off the island. Did she deserve to make it off the island? Yes. And there were, there were points in time where I feel, feel like other people may or may not have deserved to make it off the island. I swayed throughout the movie and I did land on, yeah, she's the only one who deserved it. Yeah. Do I feel like she made it to land? No. Oh, it's a twist. That's the menu too. No, I don't think she Lamb chops. I don't know. <laughs> well, if you think about it, if you think about it, everybody on that island was supposed to die. Yes. That boat was only supposed to go one way. Interesting. You don't there think that like they would have showed up the next day and been like, oh, there's a lot of dead people. Eventually, they were going to see the fire from land and be like, oh, we need to get over there. Mm, that yeah. boat stalled out on her because yeah. it obviously ran out of gas because it wasn't supposed to go back to the main. True. <laughs> that is interesting. One I, cheeseburger. Yeah. No, that's very, very fair. Well, we do get to see a myriad of sacrifices at the end in the form of our final dessert, s'mores. Ugh, so beautiful. It is. And it's a really great explanation of, again, something that's incredibly American and disgusting, which is marshmallows. You know, just like these gelatinous things put together with like cheap chocolate, but they, they are a memory. And so Chef Slovak and his team proceed to, to dress 
in a ritualistic fashion, all the other restaurantees in like these strange like chocolate marshmallow like hats and capes, <laughs> which are just wild, just absolutely insane. No people. Yeah. And and at this point in time, you know, everybody is more than resounded to their fate. They've kind of like come to accept why this is happening and how they feel about it. Do you have a favorite sacrifice at the end of this movie? Sacrifice or re- like who am I happy died or reaction? Like who's like who's your favorite person in these moments of sacrifice? Uh Anne. Anne. For saying thank you yeah. is my favorite reaction. Die is definitely Lillian the food critic. Yeah, um, but yeah. thank you for joining the tiny cult of Judith Light. It's run by me. I went back and forth on on like, did she deserve to be there? Did she deserve to die? But yeah, at the end, it was just like, oh yeah, you did. You did deserve to be there. You did deserve to die. Yeah. Uh, what I what I really enjoy about Anne as a character is that she understands the theatricality of coming here, and by creating this special thing week after week with her husband you know, she she is trying to connect with him and she's trying to do it through this spectacular thing that they can afford. It is kind of this reminder that her meals are not necessarily about the meals, even though she loves coming here. Because it's very clear that she's the person who kind of is like, oh, we should go to, you know, Hawthorne, you know, yeah. on Thursday. And her husband's yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. May- maybe if, you know, it's not too, not too busy, blah, 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 blah. She's, she's the one who at the very end of this, they put that stupid chocolate hat on her and she just looks at the employee and just says, Thank you. And I want to be her. I don't know why. (laughs) You know, as as we're ready to light all these people up in so much flame and cleanse them all through fire, chocolate, and marshmallow. So beautiful. Like the plating, the the whole room is a plate. Yeah, absolutely. The plate is so beautiful. Oh, yeah. It's would you eat? This dish? Are you asking if I would be a cannibal? I, you know what? It wasn't the initial intent, but here we are. Well, you know what? How about this? Did you think we were going to eat people in this movie? Like, am I crazy? Or did you think people were going to eat people in this movie? I, I, no, I wasn't expecting people to eat people in this movie. Okay. I guess I always assume when it's about horror and food that someone's going to get eaten. Yeah. And Okor loves a good cannibal moment. And so do I. I. I wasn't expecting a fresh moment, no. Oh, none of us are expecting a fresh moment. <laughs> <sighs> Again, sorry, I'm getting all hot and bothered over here. So I care kind of like before that, that escalates too much further. Um, this this film, it holds such an interesting place in modern folk horror history to me. But what do you say? Does this film qualify as a folk horror film? Would you put it in yeah. the Wicker Man and sacrifice the greater movie gods? Like, I've, I put it in terms of like midsummer yeah because it, it is like the culty vibes it is the i mean you even get the marshmallow capelets even remind me of like the rose cape interesting and, i yeah. love this i you know what you are going to be my first person i'm marking it here in my notebook and i i am very curious in again this is like not a bad thing i cannot express that enough i want to see how many people reference midsummer over Wicker Man throughout this podcast because it is such a staple in kind of like the revival of how we look at modern folk horror. So I love that these are the references that you're pulling. And I want to make note of these for all of my future guests. Are you a bitch or are you a wicker bitch? Let's find out. (laughs) 
but but excellent. I'm so glad that you were able to join me to talk about this movie. I know it's a film that you and I both love. Well, how can people find you on social media? Um, I am on TikTok, Instagram, and and the website, obviously, What's Leah Making? And then I understand also that in honor of our inaugural episode, you have decided to make us a little treat. Yeah. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, there will be a recipe that will be going up hopefully the same day that this episode is released. Indeed. So yes, if you guys have enjoyed this episode, please feel free to head on over to What's Liam Making so that way you can see our specialty little crossover dish in honor of her coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Leah, for joining me. This has been such a blast. And thank all of you out there for joining me for this this wonderful first episode of Folksy. I have to go dissolve into some mists and feed some creatures of the night what noises they make when they are not fed. But until next time, stay folksy, y'all. Yeah.